August has taken hold, but now it's September. I know, yay. I hope everybody had a wonderful Labor Day weekend. Yes, and August, month of August, or just really the, the last three months of summer. Yeah. <laughs> but it is hot out, at least in New York City. Yes. Summer has decided to not go anywhere. The fall is coming, so oh gosh, if I you're hope. basic like me, break out your vests, oh, break man. out your sweaters. I need my Uggs, I need my leggings, I need my vests, and my sweaters. That's what we I need. We basic over here. We, okay, we, we super be, basic. We be basic. So how was your um, holiday weekend? It's great. I just went to North Carolina. Nice. With my family and nice. hiked and um, was it was just lovely and relaxing. Oh, and I started watching Outlander. Oh my God, me too! <laughs> You know we're like years behind the crowd, know, right? You actually just started watching no, it this weekend. No, no joke. Not. That's I mean, so I want to. I mean, it'd be cooler if I said this weekend. But, but honestly, like within like the last week, I started watching it. No way. I started watching it on Saturday, and I'm already like halfway through the first season. I think I'm on like episode <laughs> five or six right now. It's very addicting, and I've, I'm definitely going to start speaking in a Scottish accent. What I need to soon. know is. Her, like, Scottish dresses are the uh-huh. most beautiful thing I've, I, like, every time she puts something on, yeah. I'm like, what? Okay, so here's my thing about shows that are set way back in time. Okay. With the dresses. Okay. Because they're always so tight. Very tight. That the cleavage is, like, popping out. Correct. Like, during the entire... I'm not, I don't want to spoiler spoiler anybody, Mm-mm. but there's like this one episode where she's wearing this one dress the entire episode, and the whole episode, I'm just like, it just, it looks like her boobs hurt. It looks like that's hurting her boobs, and I don't think that at the time, they, they were conservative back then, so I feel like at the time, they would have been like, put your boobs away, I, I guess, but <laughs> I don't know if it like, but then I look at all like, you know those like the townsfolk and like the vill- the baker's wife and stuff. You know the women who like really were like chesty and stuff. And I feel like here's the thing: I don't know if they always try to make women with like on the smaller side of boobs have bigger boobs because I yeah. feel like if you have a corset, no matter what's going to happen, your boobs are going to look crazy. Yeah. Like, huge and overflowing yeah. like and all that stuff. she's a teeny tiny woman. Very much so. She does not have big boobs. So, I'm, I would, and we've, I mean, we've seen them, too. Yeah. In the scenes yeah. of, of lovemaking, so. <laughs> and, yeah, we, we, I've seen them more times than sure. maybe I've seen my own recently. That's I don't fair. Know. That's fair enough. Yeah. The angles, you know, I don't I'm know. just like, your, your boobs aren't that big, and it just looks like it hurts anyway. That's my rant about shows with the old-timey costumes, because I'm just like, it just doesn't feel realistic to me. I, I know just, it's not a realistic show. I'm just real. I mean, you don't know. You don't go to, like, stones and, like, fall through time. Like, you don't know. You can't, like, totally discard it. I am constantly time-traveling through stones, <laughs> but I am never wearing corsets that make my boobs look that big. Oh, my okay. gosh. But I will say something super fast. In the first episode, I thought the costume designer was... Was such a genius because the moment she like steps through time or whatever she's yeah. wearing 
So before she like steps through the rock or whatever actually happens, she's wearing this like very like dainty white dress that's like buttoned at the top and has like a nice like belt. But when she comes on on the other side, like hundreds of years like beforehand, she like tumbles down this hill and like the button comes off and her belt breaks off. So she looks like she's just basically wearing this like, like this under, yeah, like this like, shift. yeah, thank you. Which I was like, yeah, I thought it was genius. I kept telling Dylan, I was like, who's this costume designer? They're so <laughs> yeah. smart. Yeah. Because like, of course, going from one thing to another, one time period to another, the outfits would be so different. Mm. So the fact that she like, Totally, and, I thought it was great. And they're somehow making the men in the kilts and the weird Scottish berets look super hot. I mean, so like, Dylan maybe said, hey, would you mind if I start wearing a hat like that? And I said, no, not at all. So <laughs> I'm all about that look. I, I think it's great. I mean, they make it look good. <sighs> they make it look good. Mm. It. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, well, okay. That so is that a show. <laughs> I think that show is like made for women, so I think it's appropriate that we talk about it on this podcast because it's like it's absolutely made for women. It's a good show for the ladies. I mean, it's, if you know what I mean. Okay. Also, the books apparently are like it's like a it's like a huge series. Yeah, it's like Harry Potter, but like for yeah. Like I hope women. this show goes on forever. <laughs> I mean, now we're in a different show. century. Like, I don't know what's going on. Oh, I'm not there I'm, yet. No, no, no. But have you seen the buses? I've seen the buses. The damn the spoilers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The spoiler alerts for I know there's spoilers. The spoiler ads. alerts everywhere just in the ads. Anyway, uh, we should okay. Go so anyway, <laughs> okay. Here we go. Um, so. I actually kind of have a twofer this Ooh, evening. Okay. Because I started looking into one of the ladies, and then I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't do one without the other. And I thought of maybe doing one this week and one next week, but their stories are so intertwined that I just thought, why not? Yeah. Um, so I'm doing Helen Keller and Annie Sullivan oh, this cool. evening. Yeah. Yay. So, so let's, just, let's just do this. So I'm going to start with Anne. Um, and then their stories are going to intertwine, and it's going to be great. All right, so Anne Sullivan, or Annie, was uh, born Joanna Mainsfield Sullivan Macy on April 14, 1866, in Feeding Hills, Agawam, Massachusetts. Ooh. She was the oldest child of Thomas and Alice Sullivan, who during the potato famine uh, left Ireland uh, and came to the U.S. without any skill sets or talents or really anything um so naturally both parents were illiterate and they were both extremely impoverished so not the best start when Anne was only five years old she contracted a terrible bacterial infection known as trachoma which creates painful ocular infections and left her nearly blind over the course of a few years so when she was eight her mother died of tuberculosis and her father, who apparently was a bit physically abusive, abandoned her and her younger brother, James, um, since he had no way of supporting them and taking care of them. So the two children were sent to a poorhouse in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, and the conditions inside this house were so terrible that rats were everywhere, and Apparently, out of the 27 children that arrived that same year, mm -hmm. along with James and Annie, they died. Oh, my. Yeah. So it was, like, the worst of the worst. Um, 
So after a few months there, Jimmy, or James, uh, was already quite weak from a previous hip ailment, and he passed away. So after seeing her brother's uh, dead body, Sullivan was quoted in saying, I went, quote, I went out quietly. I sat down beside my bed and wished to die with an intensity that I have never wished for anything else. Oh, that is so sad. So sad. So she remained actually in the poorhouse for another four years, uh, where the doctors tried their best to operate on her eyes, which was successful in short term, but in the end, the pain just kind of came back. Yeah. But my thing is, is that I don't think I want poor house doctors operating yeah, on my eyes. Probably not. But, like, if you're a poor house kid, you probably don't know you're the like difference. like, anything. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But look, I was reading that, and I was like, mm, yeah, that, ugh, that just gives me all kinds of heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Um, so uh, Anne Sullivan ultimately lost her sight at a young age, and as a result, never learned how to read or write or learn to sew, which was a huge, um, which is a very popular occupation for women at the time to be a seamstress. So the only occupation that was left for her was a housemaid. However, that didn't turn out successful either because she was losing her vision. So, mm. yikes. So during an inspection of the poorhouse in 1880, Sullivan convinced Franklin Benjamin Sanborn to allow her to attend the Perkins School for, Bl- for the Blind in Boston. After four years at the poorhouse, she finally had the opportunity to leave. On October 7th, 1880, she began her studies at the Perkins School. She had a tough time fitting in since she wasn't properly educated and a little rough around the edges, but she was able to connect with a few teachers and was able to progress her education. She made friends with a woman named Laura Bridgman, who was the first pupil to graduate from Perkins after being its first deaf and blind student. Wow. So Sullivan learned the manual alphabet from her, and she was lucky enough to undergo several uh, several other eye operations that proved better than the ones in the poorhouse that significantly improved her vision. So things are looking up and up. In June of 1886, she graduated as the valedictorian of her class at Perkins. That following summer, the director of the Perkins School, Michael Anagnus, was contacted by a man by the name of Arthur H. Keller, who was in dire need of a teacher for his seven-year-old deaf and blind daughter, Helen. So Anagnus, which is the weirdest name to say, but he's a good (laughs) man, so it doesn't matter, Michael Anagnus immediately thought of Sullivan and suggested that she be the perfect candidate. Yay! So now we're going to flash back six years prior. In 1880, Helen Keller was born on June 27th as Helen Adams Keller in Tuscumbia, Alabama. Am I saying that right? Tuscumbia? I don't know. I've actually never heard of that. I just like, I was like reading, I was uh, listening to some like little like YouTube videos of of them, of Helen Keller and and Sullivan. And I was like, please, please pronounce this name. Please pronounce (laughs) this name so I know how to hear it. And I, I'm just going to say Tuscumbia, Alabama. Um, Wealthy family who lived in their homestead named Ivy Green, which had been built by her grandfather decades earlier. She had two siblings, Mildred Campbell and Philip Brooks Keller, and two older half-brothers that her father, uh, Arthur H. Keller, had brought on from a previous marriage, James and William Keller. So Arthur H. Keller spent most of his life as an editor for the Duscumbia North Alabamian and was (laughs) a captain in the Confederate Army. Funnily enough, Helen's paternal grandparents were second cousins to Robert E. Lee. Oh. Which is like, whoa, okay. 
and her mother, Kate Adams, was the daughter of the Confederate General Charles W. Adams. Another weird coincidence was that one of Helen Keller's ancestors from Switzerland was the first teacher for the deaf in Zurich. Oh, cool. So, like, years later when she found that out, she was like, oh, life is such full circle, all that stuff. And I was like, that's great. I like that. (laughs) So Helen was born completely uh, with sight, with hearing abilities. She was, you know, quote-unquote a normal baby. Um, And she was... uh, when she was 19 months old, she contracted an unknown disease described as, quote, an acute congestion of the stomach and brain, end quote. So today it's most likely that she contracted scarlet fever or meningitis. Okay. So whatever the illness was, she was left without sight or hearing. The only person, isn't that the, like, that's I feel so like that's scary. the scariest thing in the world. You're just, completely dark. Yeah, well, I'm just, like, thinking of her parents, because she was still a baby, right? Yeah, she was yeah, 19 so, like, months old. Yeah, so, like, just her parents, it's like, one day your kid just stops being able to see, and you're like, ah, oh, like, what is She that? was not even two. Yeah. Like, little bit, and, like, all of a sudden you think you're, like, in the crib, and, like, what is going on with my child? Oh, my yeah. God, it's terrible. So the only person in the household that she was able to communicate with was the six-year-old daughter of the family cook, whose name is Martha Washington, which I was like, hold up, so the first lady of America? I was like, wait, what? Cool name. Okay. Um, So by the age of seven, Helen and Martha had established over 60 home signs that she was able to share with the rest of her family. Helen was able to know which person was walking through the house based on the vibrations that their footsteps created and what sex and age they were by how strong their steps were and how long their stride was. Cool. What? That's so awesome she was very frustrated as one could absolutely imagine i would be too and often had violent temper tantrums she would bite and pinch relatives broke plates she would throw food and overturned her sister's cot while she was sleeping so she was just having moments poor thing i mean it's completely understandable so uh, her mother was actually an incredibly well-educated woman, um, and she was a very avid reader. So uh, after finishing Charles Dickens's American Notes, um, she was determined to help find uh, her daughter some help. So in this travelogue by Dickens, he mentions the successful education of another deaf and blind woman named Laura Bridgman, yeah. who is the same woman who taught Annie Sullivan. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is great. Another full circle. Um, In 1886, she sent Helen, who was accompanied by her father, to Baltimore to seek out an ear, nose, and throat doctor by the name of Dr. J. Julian Chisholm. He sent them over to Alexander Graham Bell, who was working with deaf children at the time. What? Your story has so many references. It's the, it's the, I love it. I was like, this is great. I know. (laughs) There's just so many. Um... So Bell then referred them to the Perkins Institute, and lo and behold, the Kellers were then matched with Ann Sullivan, who was only 20 years old at the time. Um, of course, Sullivan accepted the opportunity and agreed to the wage of $25 a month. Uh, apparently, I did the I did the uh, inflation cali- uh, calculators are my favorite things for yeah. some reason. I always <laughs> just want to know what it means. Like, yeah. what is $25 in, in, in the 1880s? So it was only around like six hundred, but she was bored. She had food. She was boarded. Like, yeah, I mean, a month when you're like got food and board, that's pretty good. You're also twenty, so it's like, yeah, I, I don't think it's terrible. I also 
thought it would be a little bit more. But also, six hundred dollars in Alabama is probably more than like in Tuscumbia, Alabama is probably more than well six hundred dollars in a, in a city. I concur with you. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so on uh, in March of eighteen eighty seven, Sullivan arrived at Ivy Green. Uh, and she and Keller immediately began a rigorous curriculum within a strict schedule to introduce Helen to new vocabulary words. However, Helen was, you know, poor thing, not having it. Um, she accidentally <laughs> knocked out one of Sullivan's front teeth. Oh. Um, and their first experiment was the word doll. Um, since Sel Sullivan brought Helen a doll upon their formal introduction, uh -huh. uh, she tried spelling out D-O-L-L -L into her hand. Um, but of course, poor Helen became increasingly frustrated because she wasn't used to having specific words correlated to certain things. Okay. Which is such an interesting way to think about because yeah. of course I'm like, this is a couch, that's a chair. But like in her world, she doesn't, like, could, you don't know what it looks like. And you don't have a word to. Yeah, I isn't that like a, how a, she thinks of things? Like yeah, in terms of the verbs, maybe like I sit or I don't, I don't know. Oh yeah, that's interesting. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, but it's like it must be just such a different way of thinking. Um, so uh, when Sullivan was teaching Helen the word mug, Helen became so annoyed that she broke the mug instead. <laughs> so the, of course, the famous breakthrough came the following month when Keller finally realized that Sullivan was motioning the words into the palm of her hand while the two were near a water pump. Uh -huh. So while she's feeling the water, yeah. Sullivan is, is signing the letters into her hand. So she finally made yeah. the connection that like, oh, I'm feeling what this W-A-T-E-R thing is. Yeah. I, which I think is great. I remember that specific moment from the movie. like from Miracle Worker? Absolutely. I can't even remember what it was called, yeah, but I just Miracle have Worker. like a memory of only that scene from that movie. Yeah, it's like, it's one of the most like famous scenes like ever um, because it's so like moving. It's like this yeah. like, oh, oh my gosh, it's a lot. Um, so Keller then realized that while she was running her hand under cool water, Sullivan was spelling the word water in her other hand. And that's when the ball started to getting uh, started to roll. So by the end of that first day, they were able to establish 30 new words. Wow. Like they were on a roll. This was happening. Um, within six months, Sullivan was able to teach Helen 575 words and a few multiplication tables. So not only were we doing words, but numbers too. Yeah. Worlds are colliding. It's a lot. Um, by the age of 10, Helen mastered the Braille system and she was able to use the typewriter. Sullivan, uh, Sullivan strongly encouraged Helen's parents uh, that she come back with her to the Perkins Institute where she could help Helen further her studies. So in May of 1888, Keller attended the Perkins Institute with Sullivan by her side. Then in 1894, the duo moved to New York City to attend the Wright Humison School for the Deaf and was taught by Sarah Fuller at the Horace Mann School for the Deaf. In 1896, the two returned to Massachusetts, and Helen, who was then able to speak well enough, entered the Cambridge School for Young Ladies before being accepted into Radcliffe College in 1900. Heck yeah, girl. She's doing it. During her time, this is, this is what I found so interesting. During her time in college, Sullivan literally had to sign all of Keller's assignments in her hands. Yeah, that's wild. Could you imagine the, like, patience and, like, dedication that it takes to be, like, you know, the assignment is, you know, write, like, a 500-word essay on something, and you have yeah. to, like, I, I mean, that's amazing. Um, 
1905, Sullivan married John Albert Macy, who was a professor at Harvard University as well as a literary critic who would later go on to help Helen publish her works. He moved in with the two women and they all lived together. However, after a few years, excuse me, the marriage began to crumble. And by 1914, they were separated, but they never officially divorced and Sullivan never remarried. In 1904, at the age of 24, Keller graduated from Radcliffe, becoming the first blind person to earn a bachelor degree of the arts. She also apparently learned like Italian, French, Latin, like she's just like, really? I can't even learn those things. And I have the ability to like see and hear like what? That makes me feel like especially Latin. I know I I was reading all this and I was like, I really should get it together. (laughs) I should learn. I really should get it together. Um, so Keller was determined to speak, so she learned how to, and she spent most of her life giving lectures and speeches on what she's learned in her life. She learned to read people's lips with her hands, and she became proficient in Braille and, of course, reading sign language with her hands as well. She often enjoyed music by placing her hand on the table of whatever was playing close by and feeling the vibrations. I mean, she's just taken the world over. Um, With Sullivan by her side, Helen went on to become a world-famous speaker and author. They both traveled to 39 countries, giving motivational speeches about how uh, impaired people should, of course, be treated equally. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was a suffragette, she was a birth control supporter, and she was a radical socialist. Dang. Right? She's just taken it. In 1915, she and George A. Kessler, who was a survivor of the Lusitania disaster, I had to look that up because I totally forgot what that was. But it was when the the German U-boat took down that, like, Titanic-looking ship. Uh And that's when, like, the Lusitania. Yeah. yeah. And that's when, like, everyone was like, we have to go to war. That's so. That's that. In 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 my in Pamela's in Pamela's words, a quick summary. And that's that. Let's go. Um, (laughs) So they both teamed up and created the Helen Keller International Organization. Organization was specialized in researching vision, health, and nutrition. In 1920, Keller went on to help found the American Civil Liberties Union, aka the ACLU. I didn't know that. Right. Uh, she and oh, this was super cool. She and Sullivan, well, the ACLU is a little bit cooler, but I thought this was pretty neat. She and Sullivan frequented Japan and apparently first introduced the Akita breed to America after the Japanese government gifted the dog to Helen. So, like, the Akita, the Akitas, like, yeah. they look like little, um, Akita, like, they're tiny and fluffy and they look like, are they black and white? I don't, I don't know. think so. Okay. Whatever. Well, right. Sure. They're black and white Google now. It. Yeah, yeah. Everybody. We'll figure it. Akita. Do it. Um, she also met every president from President Cleveland to Johnson and was close friends with many public figures such as Mark Twain, Charlie Chaplin, and of course, Alexander Graham Bell. <laughs> Keller was a member of the Socialist Party and took an active stance in supporting the working class from 1909 to 1921. Many of her speeches and writings were about women's right to vote and the impacts of war. She joined the Industrial Workers of the World, a.k.a. the Wobblies. That's literally what they're called, the Wobblies, in 1912. Keller wrote a total of 12 published books and multiple articles. When she was only 22, she wrote her autobiography, The Story of My Life, in 1903. And of course, with the help of Sullivan, and at that time, Sullivan's husband, 
they both helped her recount her life up until she was 21. She wrote this while she was studying at Radcliffe. So not only is she like trying to write all these essays and learning Latin, but she's writing her autobiography. Oh my gosh. Cool. Just, Quit you know. making us all look bad. You're making Ellen. us look real terrible. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. Um, In 1908, she wrote The World I Live In, and five years later, in 1913, she wrote a series of essays on socialism titled Out of the Dark. In 1932, the two women were each awarded honorary fellowships from the Educational Institute of Scotland, Outlander, and (laughs) and honorary degrees from Temple University. In 1955, Sullivan was granted an honorary degree from Harvard, and in 1956, the director's cottage at the Perkins Institute was named the Keller Macy Cottage. For most of her life, Anne Sullivan had been visually impaired, but by 1935, she lost complete sight in both eyes. On October 15, 1936, she suffered a coronary uh, she suffered a coronary, coronary thrombosis. She then fell into a coma and passed away five days later, on the 20th of October. She died in Forest Hills, Queens, at the age of 70, with Helen holding her hand. Oh, I know. Oh, best friends. Best friends. She was cremated, and her ashes were entered into the National Cathedral in D.C. The two women all together shared a 49-year-long relationship. Oh. Like, I oh, I'm just starting to get so chills. So sweet. Um, so many years prior, when Sullivan and Keller were living with Sullivan's then-husband, John, they brought on a young Scottish housemaid named Polly Thompson. She had no previous experience with the blind, but at first, um, at first rather, then eventually she became a companion to Keller and Sullivan's secretary. So when Sullivan passed, she became Heller's companion, Helen's companion. The two moved to Connecticut, and they traveled worldwide to raise money for the blind. After the passing of Thompson in 1960, uh, Winnie Corbally, who was originally hired as a nurse for Thompson after her stroke, then became Keller's companion until her final days. I apparently was very worried about Helen Keller at this moment, yeah. and I needed to see who her companions were after Sullivan yeah. passed away. I was like, <laughs> who's looking out for Helen? She needs somebody. <laughs> she needs somebody. She's lost her best friend. I'm like, I like just made, I need to, needed to make sure she was okay. Um, so in 1961, Keller began suffering from a series of strokes and spent her remaining years of life at home. On September 14, 1964, President Johnson awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, one of the United States' two highest civilian honors. The following year, she was elected into the National Women's Hall of Fame at the New York World's Fair. During the final days of her life, Keller was devoted to raising funds for the American Foundation for the Blind. On June 1st, 1968, just a few weeks shy of her 88th birthday, she died in her sleep. Her body was cremated and placed right next to her most beloved and trusted companion, Anne Sullivan, Aww. at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Oh, that is so sweet. Best so friends forever. Best friends. BFFs. That's I, like, I cried a little bit this afternoon. Like, I was very, like... New meaning to BFF. Like, New meaning. Well, this quote's going to put you over the edge. Oh, my God, stop. I'm, like, about to cry. <clears throat> walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light. Oh, stop. That's where I'm going to leave it. I'm fine. I mean, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm not crying. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm not sweating or anything. I'm fine. I'm not crying. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. I'm very emotionally oh, stable. My gosh. I'm I was gonna... like, BFF goals. Yeah. Hashtag squad goals. Screw the squad. You just did just your BFF. One more. Yeah, right? Oh, I just thought that was the most. 
Loved yeah. it. That's beautiful. Right? All right. Well, <laughs> now it's your turn. Now that I'm <laughs> crying a little bit. Emotionally distraught. It's your turn. My person's very different. Um, so I, I took a re- I, I took a request this week. Ooh. Um, from my mom. Oh my God! Yes, mom. Thanks. Hey, mom. Woohoo! Uh, my poor mom actually all weekend didn't have a voice. She got <gasps> she got sick and lost her voice. Oh no. Um, but still managed you know be the best and give me a suggestion for for a woman to do this week. Uh, duh. Thanks, uh, mom. So the person I'm doing this week is Irma Bombeck. And oh, I don't know. I did not know who this person was. Okay, either. good because but I don't my mom that. and my aunt Susan who we were with were both like. You don't know who Irma Bombeck is? She's the best. She's, oh my God. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited now. All right, (laughs) tell us. Um, Okay, so she was a a humor writer. Okay. Um, She was born February 21st, 1927 in Ohio. And she was just kind of a regular regular gal. Gotcha. She's from a working class family, was raised in Dayton, Ohio. Um, Her dad was a city crane operator. Okay. Um, she, you know, in school already became really interested in writing. All through school, um, in junior high and in high school, she was constantly writing for her school papers or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, and actually, she also practiced tap dance and <gasps> singing. Yes, and was triple threat. hired by a local radio station for a children's review for eight years when oh. she was young. But her real love was writing. She wrote a humorous column in her junior high school paper um, called The Owl. Okay. And then she went to a vocational high school where she wrote a serious column, but she also mixed in bits of humor. And while she was still in high school, she started working at the Dayton Herald as a copy girl. And she shared the full-time assignment with a friend, so I guess it was like an after-school kind of gig. But in 1943, for her first journalistic work, she interviewed Shirley Temple. Get out of here! <laughs> what? Did they tap dance together? Maybe they tap dance together. They, I, I they don't did. know. Um, but Shirley Temple was in Dayton, so Irma got to interview her, and the interview became a newspaper feature. So she's still in high school, and she's already published in a... I was going to ask, wait, yeah. hold on, how old is she? Wow, that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, she's still really young. So she completes high school the next year in 1944, and then to earn a college scholarship fund, she worked for a year as a typist and stenographer for the Dayton Herald and some other places. Um, You know, she was working lots of odd jobs to try to earn money. And then the next year, she enrolled in the Ohio University at Athens. Mm -hmm. Um, But she actually failed most of her literary assignments there and was rejected from the university newspaper. Oh. And then she ran out of money. Okay. So she left after one semester when her funds ran out and she was kind of failing on on her writing front. But then she enrolled in the University of Dayton, which was a Catholic college. She moved home. Some of us have to do that sometimes. Sometimes you got to move home, guys. And there is nothing wrong with that. Sometimes the economy is that good. I don't know. Oh, nothing uh, wrong with it. <laughs> and she lived, so she moved home and she worked at Reich's store, department store, where she wrote humorous material for the company newsletter. So she was keeping the dream alive. She was keeping the dream alive. I like it. Um, and she worked two part-time jobs in addition to working there and being in college as a termite control accountant at an advertising agency. I don't really even know what that means. Maybe and, she, like, managed the termites. <laughs> yeah. A termite control accountant at an advertising agency. I feel like maybe Something. somebody's confused. And a public relations person at the local YMCA. All right. 
Um, so one of the professors at her new college starts encouraging her to write again Good. for the newspaper. So she starts writing for the Dayton University paper, or University of Dayton paper, The Exponent. Um, so she graduated in 1949 with a degree in English, and um, she then got married to a guy named Bill Bombeck. So now she's Irma Bombeck. Gotcha. Um, who was also a student at the University of Dayton. So then she keeps writing, but she really, she starts to have kids with her husband, Bill. Um, well, first they adopt a girl. They think that they can't have kids, and they adopt a little girl named Betsy in 1953. Aww. And she really, for the next 10 years or so, is mostly a full-time housewife and mom, but she also keeps writing a series of humorous columns in the Dayton Shopping News. Right. It's like real small-time, part-time kind of stuff. Sure. Um, so, but then she actually ended up being able to have kids and she gave birth to a son, Andrew. And then, um, they also had a second son, Matthew. All right. Um, so then after that, in 1964, Irma Bombeck resumed her writing career for the local Kettering Oakwood Times with weekly columns which yielded three dollars each. <gasps> three whole dollars? Three dollars. Which in 1964 really was not that much money. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah, let's let's get that inflation yeah. calculator out. Yeah. <laughs> um, in 1965, the Dayton Journal Herald requested new humorous columns as well, and Bombeck agreed to write two weekly 450-word columns for fifty dollars. After three weeks, the articles went into national syndication through Holy the Newsday crap. Newspaper Syndicate into 36 major U.S. newspapers with three weekly columns under the title At Wit's End. Jeez Louise. So she's just been like kind of like chilling, writing for her local shopping newspaper yeah. for 10 years. Some termite control situation. Yeah, maybe controlling termites. I don't know. Who knows? And then all of a sudden, her... her columns get picked up they're like hey this lady sure is funny and um, all of a sudden she's all over the country that's amazing so she quickly became a popular humorist nationwide beginning in 1966 she began doing lectures in the various cities where her columns appeared in 1967 her newspaper columns were compiled and published by Doubleday under the title at wit's end and after a humorous appearance on arthur godfrey's radio show she became a regular guest on the show I love that title at Wit's End. I think that's at great. At Wit's End, yeah, because it's great. all about like all of her col columns are about like being a mom, sure. and a housewife, and yeah, stuff. yeah. So, I love it. Um, super cute. So then she gets an agent. Uh oh. Hey, lady. I think you're going to be a star. Hey, uh, um, why don't you come with so, me? <laughs> by 1969, 500 U.S. newspapers featured her at Wit's End columns, what? and she was always also writing for Good Housekeeping, Reader's Digest, Family Circle, Red Book, McCall's, and even Teen Magazine. Oh, you know, I've never heard of those magazines casual. before. Casual. Casual. Very casual. Um, so by 1978, 900 U.S. newspapers were pu publishing her column. What? In 1976, McGraw-Hill published Bombeck's The Grass is Always Greener Over the Septic Tank. Excuse me? <laughs> this woman I love. I know. Um, <laughs> which became a bestseller. And in 1978, Bombeck arranged both a million-dollar contract for her fifth book, if life is a bowl of cherries, what am I doing in the pits? <laughs> okay, I need to Amazon this woman. I, this, I these know. books need to come to me right now. And a 700,000 copy advance for her subsequent book, Aunt Irma's Coat Book. Cope, like you're coping. Gotcha. You know? Gotcha. Um, so at the invitation of television producer Bob Shanks, Bombeck participated in ABC's Good Morning America. What? 
from 1975 until 1986. So she's jumping from page to screen. Like leaping. Like a gazelle. Killing it. And she began doing brief commentaries, which um, were recorded where they where they lived at the time in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. And she did gag segments and important interviews, so a mix of both: the serious and the silly. I like this serious lady. and silly. Um, so she then was offered some television pilots. She did a television pilot called "The Grass Is Always Greener," based on her book. Um, but it didn't go so well. And mm-hmm. then she also did another one called Maggie, which didn't go so well. So Aww. she didn't end up transferring so well from, from Good Morning America to, like, a pilot-type thing. Um, but here's where she gets even in, more interesting than, she, you know, she's funny. She can do the serious. She's great. But in 1978, she becomes involved in the Presidential Advisory Committee for Women, oh. particularly with the final implementation of the Equal Rights Amendment. And she was strongly criticized for this um, by conservative groups. Sure. So, you know, she's kind of this representative of everyday housewife sure. humor. Yeah. And now here she is getting all liberal on everybody. And so some bookstores across the country in more conservative oh, areas no. took her books off the shelves. Jerks. I know. Sad. Um, and then even sadder, the Equal Rights Amendment didn't end up being um, ratified. And she expressed dismay over this development. Ugh. Um, at the time, anyway. So, so when was this? Night, around 1972. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Irma, by 1985, Irma Bombeck's three weekly columns were being published by 900 newspapers and in Canada and were being anthologized into a series of best-selling books. Um, she was appearing twice a week on Good Morning America, and um, she earned somewhere between half a million and a million dollars a year. Oh, casual. But then, sadly... No, no. When she she came she in 1993 announced that she had had a condition her entire life. No, she was diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease <gasps> when she was just 20 years old. Um, she survived breast cancer and a mastectomy and kept secret the fact that she had this kidney disease her entire life. Holy crap! So on a waiting list for transplant for years, one kidney um, had to be removed. Okay, and she was doing daily dialysis. And then she got the a kidney transplant on April third, nineteen ninety six. But then she died just a couple weeks later on April twenty second, nineteen ninety six. And oh. she was only sixty nine years old. Oh man! Um, so she is she's buried in um, Dayton, Ohio, okay. where where she grew up. Um, but yeah, so she was this funny lady. So I'm going to read some of her funny quotes. Oh my god, which, I'm so ready. Which for actually, it. it's funny because she has one about Helen Keller. So when you first said so you're doing bring Helen it on, Keller, I know. So she <laughs> said, "There's a difference between success and fame. Madonna is one, Helen Keller is the other." Ooh, burn, 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 burn. ouch. Um, okay, so one of the other ones is, I haven't trusted polls since I read that 62% of women had affairs during their lunch hour. I've never met a woman in my life who would give up lunch for sex. That, <laughs> this woman is feisty and I like it. I like her. Oh my gosh. And then another one is, I take a very practical view of raising children. I put a sign in each of their rooms. Checkout time is 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah, that was pretty funny. That's and then great. I totally one. want to get that book, The Grass is Always Greener Over the Septic Tank. Yeah. Or whatever, the septic. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's hysterical. <laughs> and then this is one last one. Never go to a doctor whose office plants have died. Fair point. Fair point. Fair, Fair point. point. Irma Bombeck. 
Wow. Well, so, thanks, Trisha's mom, for that lovely yeah. suggestion. Yeah. Everybody check out Irma Bombeck. Yeah. Pretty cool lady. Oh, that was great. Yeah. That was a good, I think that was a good counterbalance. Totally. We got a little <laughs> emotional over here on the I'm first like, half. still upset. Gosh. Um, about Gosh. the Annie, <laughs> Annie Helen love story. It's a love story. Because friendships are also love stories. Uh, without a doubt, I completely agree. Okay. Well... On that note. Well, thanks, girlfriend. Thanks, <laughs> girlfriend. That was great. Oh, and this weekend, if you're listening to, to this this week, follow us on Instagram at She's Just Awesome. I'm going to be at a podcast festival, hopefully posting some Instagram stories. Yes, she is. So um, check that out. I'm, I'll try to look cute in the stories, but I make no promises. Um, Listen, I suggest <laughs> you wear that red dress with the white tennis shoes. Uh, so full disclosure, Trisha, I was looking on her Instagram clearly because we're friends. And she wore this adorable outfit in one of the pictures. And I texted her and I was like, girl, keep it up. You look so good. (laughs) And I was like, oh, don't worry. I've worn the same outfit every weekend. (laughs) So fingers crossed she wears it one more time. I love it. I think she should. Hey, when you look good in something, keep it going. Keep it going. Why break break the mold? Just keep it. Yeah, no, it'll be really great. yeah, definitely Instagram stories. It'll be super. It'll be super yeah. fun. Yeah. So follow us on Instagram and also follow us on Twitter at she's just awesome, and um, send us emails at she's just awesome podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. See what happens when we get rad requests. We follow up on them and we learn new things about new women. And and now I'm gonna buy a book on Amazon. Look at that. Woo. I love it. Um. So yeah. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll catch you on the flip side. Stay awesome. Bye. Bye.